reality check as well, isn't it? You're going off to a great bed of roses. He says, you'll be all right, off you go. He tells them what it's going to be like. You're going to be flogged, betrayed to death. It's a reality check, but it's also a king's rousing speech. But the thing is, this is not about the beginning of some war. That started in Genesis chapter 3, didn't it? This is about a revolution, a revolution with a twist. Revolution is in the air and on the ground in the Middle East at the moment. Right across the Arab world, there is a revolution kicking off, isn't there? It started, well, seemingly to us in Western Europe via our media, it seemed, seemed to start like a little spark and dry grass and it's become this international forest fire now. But, to be honest, it's obviously been going on a lot more than that under, under the surface. We just haven't seen it over here. But one nation has seen another nation and think, we can have that. And that's what's going on across Yemen and Jordan, Tunisia, Egypt, Libya, even Saudi Arabia. Just this week, just gone, the king of Saudi Arabia has given his people $20 billion worth of goodies and, and pay rises to make sure they don't depose him. <laughs> that's, that's panicking. But um, people are starving for freedom. And they're fighting for it. And they're even willing to give their lives for it. Many have already given their lives for it. There's a revolution of a different kind happening across the Arab world. Jesus came and started a revolution. Through that revolution, he has obtained freedom from millions upon millions of souls, and he continues to do so right here, right now, today. This is Matthew's main message. Matthew is not very concerned about chronology, about having all stories in the right order. You want that? You go to the book of Luke, for example. Some of the stories of Matthew are jumbled up in a different order. The reason being, he wants to get across a theme. He wants to, the way a good writer writes, he impacts his theme with, with perspectives and illustrations and feeding into this theme, which then when I bring that bit in, you're going to get it. He puts it into a different order. He doesn't, he's not worried about the calendar necessarily. So some of the stories are jumbled up. There's kind of seven sections to Matthew, starting with the prologue, with Jesus' birth, introduction to society and with his family, and he goes into the next section, which we've just been through, the Sermon on the Mount and demonstration of that. Jesus starts putting into practice, starts healing people. Then we come into, this is almost like the third section of Matthew, when things really start to kick off. He sends his 12 out and it's a crash course, isn't it? <laughs> Bless them. <laughs> what were they thinking? And then he goes on to other sections right up until the great prologue of his resurrection as well. Matthew has done this on purpose. He wants us to see and to respond to Christ's call to revolution. That's what he's done here. Matthew uses the word kingdom, it's the word basileia. He uses this word kingdom 56 times in his book alone. That's twice a chapter on average. That's a huge amount. The kingdom of God is near, the kingdom of God is here. Do you get this? Do you really understand what's going on? A kingdom is not a geographical thing, this is a spiritual thing in people's hearts. There is a revolution kicking off. Do you see what's happening? This is what Matthew's trying to get across to the people of Israel, to the Jews. This is a a revolution though, with a twist. This is not revolution like we see across the world. This is not revolution which is a rebellion against what's going on in the world, actually. This revolution is renouncing the rebellion that already exists within our hearts. Do you see the difference? It's not rebelling against what's going on in the world. It's renouncing that rebellion that already exists and living life Jesus' way. See, we're in this, on the side, but when the, the disciples are described in the book of Acts, these are the people that have turned the world upside down. I love that phrase, but it's actually wrong. These are the people that have turned the world the right way up. There's a difference, do you see? Do you see? And this is what Matthew's trying to get across in his book here. Jesus, at this point, only has 14 months left. He's already two-thirds of the way, pretty much, through his ministry time, his three-year ministry. 
is over 95% of his way through his time on earth here as a man. Time is precious. Time is running out. Time to get the job done. So he sends his troops out on a crash course. The last thing, just before this chapter, the end of chapter 9, he says, pray for labourers. Little do they realise they're the labourers, and he sends them out. There is a reality to pray for more, of course, but actually we must never forget as we pray for labourers that it starts here. And that's what he tries to get across to his disciples. He sends the 12 out with specific instruction, which is this whole chapter, with brutal honesty, absolutely, but with great encouragement as well. He heads out to do ministry himself. He doesn't sit at home twiddling his fingers, watching Sky Plus or something, waiting for them to do all the work until they come back and give him some reports. The first verse of the next chapter, you find Jesus is off doing ministry himself. He's doing it as well. But he doesn't want to be them alongside him with the expert. You want us to do it? Yep, show us how to do it again. No, off you go. You've seen me do it now. Off you go. This is the first time they've done this on their own. On their own, if you get me. How on earth did they feel? Really, if I was one of them, what you mean we go over there, you're going to stay here? Can we have like mobiles? Can we just phone you up for advice? Just, well, I can't remember, what do we do with this one? Off you go, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Real trepidation. I mean, I'm, I'm a paramedic, and in my first time out on the job nearly 20 years ago, frightening. It's a job now, I'm pretty confident. I'll, <laughs> I've been told off before on the way to emergency calls. I'm going through the Argos catalogue, ordering stuff for the new station refit, and we're about 30 seconds away. You can even see the patient lying on the grass verge. You've got one more number to write down. My mate's trying to grab the catalogue out of my hands, going, come on, we've got to get into emergency mode. It's like, I am. It's just, I've just got used to it. As soon as I jump out that door, I click, I'm fine, I get on with it. But when I first started the job, my butterflies had butterflies. You know, it was, oh, it was horrible. I had that for a few years, and most people do. It's two to five years before you get over that, if you ever will. How did these guys feel? Talk about butterflies. I'm sure they didn't eat that much. I feel terrified. So what does Jesus do? As he sends them out, he gives them this big rousing speech. By telling them all it's a bed of roses? Absolutely not. He gives them a reality check of what they're going to face in the physical realm. They're going to face apathy, rejection, persecution, division, opposition. But he also gives them the reality of what's occurring in the spiritual realm as well. He says, Father's in charge and he'll take care of you. What we always need to hear, isn't it? The same applies to us. The revolution continues and the same principles apply. So let's look at those two aspects what Jesus is doing here. We're going to look at the reality check, the heavy bit, but then we're going to look at the reassurance that Jesus gives as well. So first of all, the reality check. There's kind of a, a passive response that he warns they're going to receive. And I've, I describe that as apathy and rejection. It's kind of an, <coughs> not interested, to be honest, or I'm not even listening. Verses 14 to 15 of Matthew 10, if you've already got your Bibles open, what does he say? Saying, if you go into a village, look for someone who will uh, give you a greeting. But then he says in verse 14, If anyone will not welcome you, or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I'll tell you the truth. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. That's pretty heavy words, isn't it? As much as we can find it difficult in this country to pluck up the guts sometimes, to share the gospel, when we see an open doorway in conversation, Janet, brilliant, you got on with it, you did it this week, fantastic. As much as we can even struggle with that sometimes, which is ridiculous, isn't it, really? 
But how often do we actually want to share the gospel and people just aren't interested in the slightest? We get that very much in this country as well, don't we? We do get a lot of apathy about it in this country, from friends, from family even. Secularism, this is a problem. Secularism pervades our nation, our part of the world's thinking. Secularism, by that I mean this is free from religious instruction or teaching, or particularly the notion that decisions should always be based on evidence or fact. Give me evidence, give me fact, I'll weigh it up, do the maths, bosh, I'll follow you where I want, I'll make my mind up. But people need that. And it's a, an unfortunate spin-off of the Enlightenment and the modern world, and we're now the post-post-modern world, but it affects our thinking. It's not just about science has proven that you need fa- facts. That has now become people's whole ethos in how we even think in the first place. There's a whole study of how we think. And you'll be surprised, actually, how our own mindsets as Christians are very different to <laughs> mindsets of Christians in other countries just because of the culture they've been brought up in the first place in how we approach our understanding and how we work out if something's true. And in this part, Western, Western Europe, we're quite secluded, really. It's very much Western Europe in many ways. This whole secular thing is going on. And so people say, give me facts, prove God, I'll believe him. It's not as simple as that. Thankfully, there, are, there is evidence of facts. Of course there is. But it's not as simple as that. You can't just sit down and give people a list of stuff with little tick boxes and they'll believe you, but I'll become a Christian. It doesn't work like that, which is why we need the Spirit to minister to witness to people's hearts. Let him do the hard work. We can't engineer situations. We can't force conversations around so that we can then step in with a clever phrase that will get them saved. If only it was that simple. But we are called to share the gospel. Let God do the hard work. But we are called to share the gospel, which includes signs and wonders. I fully believe as we preach the true, full gospel, led by the Holy Spirit, he will endorse it with signs and wonders. They want evidence and facts, they're going to get it. (laughs) But we just need to keep seeking, as God's own people, we need to keep seeking after this as well. But Jesus here is saying, know when to stay, but actually feel free, know when to move on as well. This is about Holy Spirit-led lifestyle, isn't it? Sometimes we have friends who we will stick with, because they're our friends anyway, but we'll pray for them for 20, 30 years before or if they get saved. Jesus isn't saying, give them six months, if they don't get saved, find yourself another friend. He's not saying that at all, of course he's not. But we need to know where our energies are being focused and are we exhausting our energies? We need to look, led by the Holy Spirit and in prayer, look for where God's at work. God's at work in coffee and chaos. I'm jumping on the back of that. Do you see the difference? We need to see where God's working, where he's asking us to stay and where he's asking us to move on and put things to one side. See, look here, look for the man of peace. That's what we do in Coffee and Chaos. Some of those people are generally becoming our friends, men and women of peace. Out of, I, I don't see the whole of Coffee and Chaos as a mission field necessarily. I mean, it is, but there's 30-odd, say, adults we see at different points over the Fridays. Some of those, they're just contacts. They're just people we know by name and we say hello to them in Morrisons or whatever but there are five or six people who have become genuine friends, are open to the gospel, have talked to us about marriage advice, emailed me on Facebook prayer requests for family members and for illness. There's our men and women of peace. And they're genuine friends. They're not, they're not a project. They're not a man of peace as a project. These are my friends now. And I want to jump on the back of that and just let God do his great work as we build our friendship with these people. So we have to know where to focus our energies. Because those people, we don't know as much as these people in Coffee Chaos. We need to spend more energy over there so we get to know them just as much. No, feel free just to focus on the people that God is treasuring you with. And that's what we're doing. 
Jesus' answer, if you face apathy and rejection, Jesus says, here in verse 15, God will deal with them. It's between them and God, ultimately. You preach the gospel, if they don't receive it, if they reject you, that's not your problem. All I ask is that you preach the gospel. It will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Let God worry about that. So that's apathy and rejection. There is also another type of response that we can face when we preach the gospel, when we be his people. That's actual, more of an active response is opposition and rejection. We find this in the whole section from verses 16 through to 23, really. Brother will betray brother to death and so on. It's a whole list of kind of different types of persecution, notably from loved ones, very much. Do we really know persecution in this country? Really? No, we, we haven't got a clue. Thank God, but we haven't got a clue. And I think that is part of the problem why the church itself, not speaking necessarily, but I think that's a danger for all of us here, but the church in general in this country is apathetic because we don't face the opposition. We need to make our minds up, stand up and fight for Jesus. Do you know what I mean? But it's building. Persecution is building in this country. There's a couple recently, I'm sure you heard. They run a bed and breakfast, Christian couple. They quite blatantly, quite openly say, because our consciences and before God, we feel we can't allow non-married couples to share a room together. It's on their website, it's on their literature, and they even state what they believe marriage to be. It's an exclusive covenant between a man and a woman. So a gay couple turns up, they decline them a room, and it all kicks off and it's gone to court. (laughs) It's crazy. This is the kind of thing we're facing. What do you stand for? And are you really willing to stand for that? Gay church marriages is the latest thing now, isn't it? Churches are allowed to have gay... They were using the word marriage. It's a wrong definition of the word. The partnerships, right? (laughs) But that's what's happening. And the danger is, even Peter Taschel, the great gay advocate, he's saying uh, people should be free to choose whether or not they allow gay marriages in their premises. Fine. That's great. But the thin end of the wedge of that is when a church one day is asked to marry a gay couple and they say no, guess where that's going to go? Straight in the paper, straight to court again. It's going to, it's, it's going to happen all over again. Even though the law doesn't say they're allowed to do, they're allowed to, they're not allowed to say no, that's where it's going to go, human rights, etc. That's it's, it's, it's increasing in this country. In America, this is something else, in America there's been a recent report that secularists are horrified by it and have got to act upon. 13% of teachers, just came out this week, 13% of teachers in high schools in the States winningly advocate creationism in the classroom. Secularists are horrified by that. We think it's great. The secularists, however, are more horrified by the 60% that are wavering. They go, 60% who don't know if it's right to advocate it or not. We've got the other 30 40% that are quite happily saying evolution's the only way. We're happy with them, we'll let them do that. 13% that aren't going to waver, but there are 60% we can win over to evolution and say that it is a fact and that creationism is just a myth. We've got to get hold of these 60%. They're horrified about this and they're going to do something about it. They're really rousing the troops. <laughs> evolution's not a fact. Ginny and I were at a science fair this week. It was brilliant. We took Amy with experiments with big bangs and fire and lizards and all sorts of astrodomes. It was fantastic. But in amongst all of that, just in the general conversation from these people giving these lectures and demonstrations, was uh, this creature has been around for 250 million years. And it was actually, even though they look completely different, these two creatures were actually exactly the same creature with gills 300 million years ago underneath the water. 
were they? Give me evidence of fact. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Evolution is a theory. It's still a theory. If you want to teach it in schools, teach it as a theory. I don't mind. But don't teach it as a fact and teach creationism as a myth. See, people are rising up with their own faith of evolution. It's exactly the same. It's a, it's a spiritual fight. It's not just evidence and facts. It's not just science. In this arena, Jesus' answer for opposition and persecution, Jesus says, verse 19 to 20, this is about being arrested. People have been arrested now, aren't they? But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. It's good to read up, it's good to read... Dawkins book The God Delusion and find out what these people are thinking and then look back to the Bible and see what it says it's good to read what these people are writing there's another book coming out soon that I want to read that I won't agree with but I'm going to buy it because I want to know what they're thinking but we, we don't, don't worry about trying to plug your brain with so much information you've got the clever reply just trust that the Holy Spirit will give you the right answers the right words to say because it's the Holy Spirit that ministers and witnesses to people's heart not just clever words okay also, Jesus' answer to this is acknowledge God because he'll acknowledge you. I will acknowledge you before the Father. Verse 32, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. There's your security. Trust in that. Rely on that. Don't fear man. The third type of opposition you can find is division. There's a tricksy statement in here that I'll talk about in a second, that Jesus throws out there, can send you on a wobbler if you're not careful. Who's lost contact with family members because of the gospel? Yeah, people have already in this country. It's massive in other countries, but it still happens here, doesn't it? Joy said, I know someone, uh, a couple, who uh, when he was saved, he was just wanting to read his Bible, he read his Bible, and the mickey she took out of him, the things she said about what he was reading, it was hurtful. Thankfully, She's saved and she's running for God now. It's brilliant. They're a brilliant couple, good friends of ours. But when he was saved and she wasn't, the things she used to say to him when he was reading his Bible were hurtful. Because the gospel, the gospel is offensive, isn't it? 2 Corinthians 2, to one, it's the smell of death, to another, life. The gospel is offensive. Thus you get division. So why does Jesus say, don't think that I have come to bring peace? Isn't he the Prince of Peace? What happened there? Is he getting confused? Is he contradicting himself? The angels declare that Jesus' birth, glory in the highest, and on earth, peace. Peace to who? To all men? No. To those that love him. Or to those amongst, among those with whom he is pleased. Glory in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. There's a difference. Never forget. Only genuine repentance and faith in Jesus Christ for his work on the cross for our sins, his resurrection to secure us in that victory forever as his. Forever. That brings us peace. That makes us pleased by God. The gospel is the announcement of shalom wholeness, perfect completeness, well-being, utter welfare before the, before the living king. That's shalom. 
The gospel is the announcement of shalom. Perfect peace. Real peace. But naturally, people retaliate in their own sin, pride, selfishness, self-worth. People react to that in their rebellious nature, which brings division. See, God is not a vindictive God who goes out of his way to bring division. That's not what Jesus is saying. But the response to the gospel is sometimes division because of people's sinful nature. Remember, this revolution is about renouncing the rebellion that already exists within us. So Jesus is saying, always remember the bigger picture, ultimately. That's what he's saying. If you face apathy and rejection, it's okay. It's between them and God. It's not your fault. If you face opposition, it's okay. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say, acknowledge God. He will acknowledge you. And if you face division, sacrifice on earth is painful. It hurts. But it's worth it for eternal, eternal favour, favour with the King of Kings. That's the reality check. I've given some reassurances already. He's already given some reassurance in amongst that. But there's more. In amongst this reality check, it's very heavy, some of the stuff he says. Some of you are going to be arrested, betrayed even to death. Some of you are going to be flogged. <coughs> Off you go. Pardon? What was it he said? <laughs> yeah, Peter's, Peter's, no, 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 Matthew, no, 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 after you. You get there first. But what does he say? You're going to face these things. You're going to be flogged, you're going to be arrested, you're going to be betrayed by your brother unto death. All but one of them did get killed. But the Father knows every hair on your head. Mine are easier to count, I know that. But that actually means that God knows how many used to be on my head. That's really clever. That's great. But not only does he know how many we used to have, Jesus also said, Luke 21, when he's foretelling wars and further persecution for his loved ones, he says, not a hair on your head will perish. Again, many of mine have. So what does he mean? What does he mean? He means no spiritual harm, no spiritual harm will come to you. Christians still get martyred. Christians still lose their jobs. Christians still lose family contact. It's still going on, but they won't come to spiritual, eternal harm. Even last Sunday, while we worshipped, there was a guy in Kabul called Saeed Musa who had been arrested for loving Jesus, had the death penalty on him. He was about to be hanged. It could have happened at any moment while we were singing songs last Sunday. He's going to be hanged simply for loving Jesus. He's a father of young children. Thankfully, through the power of Twitter... <laughs> We love social networking. The message got about. International delegates stepped in. Through the power of prayer, he is now in another country with his family. Hallelujah. It works. It works. There is now another guy in northern Afghanistan who is in the same situation. Saeed, while he was in prison, he was abused, beaten, starved and raped. Not by the other prisoners, by guards. In the, in the prison. And all he asked was, can I just be moved to another prison? Oh, no, I'm going to be killed for loving Jesus. I don't mind that bit. Just I don't want to go through this bit now. God bless him. God honoured that. He's in a, another country with his family. But there's another guy now in North, northern Afghanistan who we're now praying for. I'll find out his name for you if you want to. Who's in exactly the same situation. He's about to lose his life simply because he loves our Lord Jesus. 
It still happens even now. But Jesus says in verse 26, do not be afraid of them. Do not fear is the most commonly recorded command in the Bible. Do not fear. Remember the bigger picture. He knows every single hair on your head. You will not come to spiritual harm. Yes, this physical stuff in this life, it flipping hurts. Jesus knew that. It went through more, more than you or I have so far. <laughs> Jesus knows that. But in the, in, the, in the realms of eternity, just acknowledge the Father and he'll look after you. Further encouragement. Verses 24, and I'm j- j- jumping about a bit, but I'm, I'm doing a Matthew. I'm not worried about chronology. I'm just trying to build a theme here. Verses 24 to 25. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the student to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. True greatness, a true life of kingdom power, comes from being like Jesus. Not only are we able to be like Jesus by his Holy Spirit, we're even told to be like Jesus. Wow. Christians, the word Christian just means little Christ. That's all it means. It's a venomous, derogatory nickname that was given to us in in Acts chapter 11, you see it, when we were first called Christians. It It wasn't chosen by the church, it was given to us by people outside the church. Look at those Christians, those little Christs. It was a derogatory nickname. The church went, I like that. Thanks very much. Little Christs, we'll have a bit of that. It's not just the name that the world made up or the church really liked, even. God, all along, had been calling his people that. In 1 Chronicles 16, verse 22, if you're taking notes, and Psalm 105, verse 15, he calls his people my little messiahs, my little Christs. God, even back then, was calling his people little messiahs. That's what we are as Christians. We are little messiahs. We are little Christs. We are called to be like Christ right here, right now in Herne Bay. We've embraced that name as a true embodiment, actually, of who we are, little Christs. The revolution continues. 2,000 years later, it's still going great guns. Christianity is not dying. It might feel like it in this country sometimes. Reports say it is. They're looking at the wrong institutionalised church, I suggest. You want to check out some other streams of what's going on underneath the surface. New Frontiers and Pioneer and Vineyard, let alone many others, Salt and Light. It's not even dying in this country, to be honest. It just feels like it sometimes. It's because of the secular world we live in. But outside of Western Europe, Christianity, is even, they've even used this phrase just recently on the internet, the growth of Christianity is a global phenomenon. Seriously. Ask Ivan about Latin America, he'll tell you what's going on in Brazil the past few decades. It's brilliant. It's amazing. Asia, Africa, it's remarkable. 100 years ago, there were, in 1900, there was 10 million Christians in the whole continent of Africa. Now, there are 363 million, and at this rate, they reckon by 2050, it'd be the first continent to have a billion Christians in. It's massive. It's massive. The revolution continues. Just like the Middle East of today, the fire of Christianity still rages, and we here are on the front line. You see, in the Middle East, they've seen what's happened in Egypt, for example, and go, 
We could have a bit of that. Libya, up they go. Whee! We can have a bit of that as well. Other countries are saying, look what happened, they did it. They're getting freedom. We can have a bit of that. They're encouraged by seeing when it happens somewhere else. For us now, we can look around the world and go, we can have a bit of that. See, in Vietnam, 1989-1990, in Vietnam, I met a pastor's wife who told us this story. When they were reading a book about the Welsh, uh, the Welsh Revival, and they said, you know what? Amazing things happened here. In this funny little part of the UK with sheep and rain and stuff. It's amazing what happened over there. That's the same Holy Spirit as we got available here in Vietnam. We're going to have a bit of that. And they sought after him and revival came in a big way. In a big way. They faced massive persecution as a result. But the church is still growing and growing and growing and growing in Vietnam because they looked across to Wales 100 years previously and said, we can have a bit of that. Now we, over here, can look to Vietnam and go, we can have a bit of that. It's the same Holy Spirit. The revolution still continues. We're going to have confidence to press on. It's part of the reason why we went through Hebrews 11, the second half of last year. Just to look at these people who we now declare as heroes. These guys are heroes. If I was there then, I'd have probably called them idiots. Really? What are you doing? Noah and Enoch and... Samuel and David and it's just like hang on a minute I'm, I'm sorry some of the stuff you're coming out with load of old rubbish load of old twaddle now with the benefit of hindsight we can look back and go hero stood firm for what God stood for that's why we went through that now in history we can look back and go we can have a bit of that it's the same Holy Spirit the same God that's at work right now be encouraged how are we doing let me explain something. I'm going to focus this down to healing, but this principle applies bigger than this. Jesus, when he prayed for healing for people, how did he do that? He didn't get, right, his barrel, and Father, I'm going to lay my hands on her, and I just thank you so much. I've known Beryl for 17 years. She's lovely, and I do like her mashed potato, but Lord, I do wish that her ears, she's had trouble with deafness, and I just pray you're really blessed because she really wants to hear the theme tune of Coronation Street. She doesn't want to just look at the pretty pictures and the subtitles. So, Lord, I just pray, just really bless our Beryl. We love her so much, we just want to see her better. So can you make her better, please? It didn't. Ears be opened. Be well. Deafness go. He commanded it. He didn't pray comforting prayers. Now, it's great to look at that and think, that was Jesus. He's allowed to. He's the son of God. He's the king of kings. Of course he can. We're just little humans. So what does he tell the disciples? Very first verse of chapter 10. He called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. So what did the disciples do? Even later on in the book of Acts, Peter sees a guy outside the temple. Does he pray a comforting prayer for him? No. Rise up. He comes across Dorcas, also known as Tabitha, Acts chapter 9. She's dead. Does he pray a comforting prayer for the family members who are grieving her now? He just says, arise. Tabitha, arise. Up she gets. Commands, because they knew the authority they moved in. Even Paul, at the end of the book of Acts, he's praying for a guy who's suffering with dysentery and fever. He's going to die. Yes, it does say Paul prayed for him. Then it also says, then he laid hands on him and healed him. There came a point Paul just got on with it and did it. We have that authority. We have that authority. 
Because then we don't have to worry about how much faith we have for healing, how much faith we have for people, how much faith the person who's being prayed for has. When you know the authority you stand in as a little Christ, the authority that the big Christ has given you, when you stand in that authority, you've got the faith there anyway. That's a moot point. You don't need to worry about it. Just know the authority that he has given each one of us that love him this morning. You stand in the authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the King of Kings, to cast out unclean spirits, to heal the sick, to preach the gospel, to see souls saved. You stand in that authority. I have to keep reminding myself. We all do. But don't forget that. Don't forget that. Just as we end... In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul shares a prayer on his heart with the church in Ephesus that he's been praying for them. Just turn, Ephesians chapter 1, because this ties into the three aspects of this prayer, tie into the three aspects of this chapter, Matthew 10, to be honest. Ephesians chapter 1, just two verses, verses 18 and 19. Ephesians 1.18 I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened just so understanding revelation comes to you so you get this. I pray that you'll see that you may know the hope to which he has called you firstly the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints secondly and its incomparably great power for us who believe. Three things the hope to which he's called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That you might know your future hope. When you know your future hope, when you know that you will be acknowledged before the Father, you press on, don't you? When you know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, secondly. When you know the riches in his church, when you know what is inherent in the church, when you know that God looks upon his church as his treasure, his pearl, when you really get what he thinks of us, then you know he values us more than a multitude of sparrows. He knows the hairs on our head and he will care for you. And thirdly, when you know his incomparably great power for us, who believe. The authority to stand in Jesus' name and see the sick be healed, the dead rise, people turn to Christ as their living Lord and Saviour, alcoholism, drug addiction, mental illness, whatever. We have the authority to go out there and be him, with him, in the world around us. So when you worry about division in the family, when you worry about apathy, rejection, opposition, we do get it, and we're going to get it, possibly more. Be encouraged. You stand in the authority of his name to be him there and then. You have his Holy Spirit in you. Keep seeking more. You will be acknowledged before the Father. You are secure. The revolution continues. Vive la revolution. Long may it continue. It will. He's already won the battle. He's done the hard work on the cross. These are just the finishing skirmishes where the enemy hasn't quite got that it's over yet. The Father's in charge and he will care for you. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you that you're a king who doesn't just blind us to the realities of the world. You quite happily share with brutal honesty what's before us. But more than that, you reassure us that we are secure in you. Your death was once and for all. We don't have to do anything on top in terms of keeping certain rules to win your favour. We're yours forever. But Lord, I do pray that you'll remind us of this. Whatever we face during this next week, few months, next few years, whatever's on the way in this country, Lord, we just trust that you'll remind us of our security in you, the authority you've given us to deal with whatever situations or people we come across, the authority to stand on our own two feet in our lives, dealing with the things we've struggled with over the past years, to deal with them in your name and to move on in your name. We thank you that we're not alone. We thank you that you're present here with us and among us by your Holy Spirit. And Lord, we just ask, as we press in deeper, Lord, may we see more of your signs and wonders endorsing your gospel. May we see more doors opening for the gospel. May we see more people saved and added to your church by your power and your power alone. Lord, And we're just so grateful that you've called us to be on the front line with you. It's a privilege as well as a responsibility, and we thank you. But Lord, just keep reminding us, keep reassuring us. Lord, because we're human, we forget. We just need to be reminded. So Lord, we thank you. Keep doing that. Help us to keep reminding each other. We love you, Lord. And even as we enjoy teas and coffees now, lunch later, may we still be dwelling on this, and may you still have it reside in our hearts. Our eyes might be enlightened to our future hope, the riches in your church, and the power within us available through you. Help us, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.